Hi, and welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. American artists post-war went to the hardware store instead of the art store, so they were using industrial materials, and they were never intended to last. They had a very short shelf life. So I would say our challenge for that kind of work is to try to preserve it as best we can, and if not, to have a sense from the artist as to how it should look. That was Carol Mancusi-Ungaro, the Melva Buxbaum Associate Director for Conservation and Research at the Whitney Museum of American Art, and for over a decade, founding director of the Center for the Technical Study of Modern Art at the Harvard Art Museums. For 19 years, she served as chief conservator of the Menil Collection in Houston, Texas. During that time, she consulted on the conservation of 20th century paintings at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and founded the Artist Documentation Program, which consists of interviews with artists about the technical nature of their art. In 2004, she received the College Art Association Heritage Preservation Award for Distinction in Scholarship and Conservation. And in 2009, she was elected a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, marking the Academy's first recognition of art conservation. In the fall of 2016, she was awarded the Forbes Prize by the International Institute for Conservation of Historic and Artistic Works, its highest honor. Welcome, Carol. Hi, Max. It's nice to hear your voice. I'm grateful you could make time for us today, Carol, because I know that despite the fact that we are still in the grips of a pandemic and the Whitney is dark, there is still more work to be done. And in fact, in some respects, you're busier than ever. Isn't that true? We are busier than ever. That's absolutely true. Much of our work addresses the work of art itself, treating the work, preserving it, um, making it exhibitable. But in order to get to the point where you actually do those treatments, you have to do an enormous amount of research. The research can address the nature of the material of the work of art or the nature of the material that you're using to restore it. And I guess an example that comes to mind is a small ceramic piece by Paul McCarthy that was installed at the Whitney before it closed. It was a piece called Walt Paul Star, W.S. Snow White, 2013. And there were small little commercially made figurines of Snow White. And the artist signed and dated them with a Sharpie pen. So when the curator wanted to install this work, in a current exhibit in one of our galleries that's particularly light filled, we thought, fine, it's ceramic, Sharpies, permanent, great. But we do light tests on material. We do all kinds of tests on materials before they're installed. And in this case, we found out Sharpie is not permanent. Despite the industrial claims, in fact, they are not. So we started an enormous research project to find a Sharpie that is permanent, and we did find one. And then we were able to purchase another one of these commercially made Snow Whites, which is part of the piece, the, the ethos of the piece is it's commercial. And the artist signed another one with the permanent ink, and that is what is in the exhibit now. It sounds like you have no shortage of responsibilities, even though the museum is closed. Yes, we do. And we greatly appreciate the time to do that now. A fair amount of our work is writing, it's research, it's all of the background work that goes into the actual treatment and then the result that you see in the galleries. Share, if you would, how you divide your time. What are the percentages allocated to your different responsibilities? 
Yeah, that's really a good question. And I, I mean, it's being posed to me and I'm the head of the department. And so I'd say my breakout of percentages is probably differs from my staff. But for me, I'm very involved with museum-wide duties at this point, as well as writing and lecturing. A treatment is done by my staff. And at this point, we have a paintings conservator, paper conservator, objects conservator, research conservator, and a full time-based media group of specialists. In terms of the time-based media, actually, we are in the midst of an interdepartmental media preservation initiative project, which is very exciting for us, very interesting, looking at our entire collection of time-based media. So the conservators spend probably more 50-50, or maybe even more 75 at the easel in the studio and 25 at the desk doing research. So the balance, I think, very much depends upon your assignment. I remember when we acquired Anthony McCall's line describing a cone, it was a 16-millimeter projection, and you had to transfer it to a digital platform. Yes. The media preservation people are very involved in that, and we actually have a small media lab that's extremely well-equipped. We're very proud of it in the conservation studio, and a lot of work goes on there, a lot. Carol, take us back to how you got started as a conservator. I went to graduate school at the Institute of Fine Arts in art history. I was on the PhD track to become an art historian. I went to the Institute to study Donatello. And really at that stage of my life, and I love telling this story because young people always think we know what we're doing straight on. I just wanted to devote the rest of my life studying the sculpture of Donatello. It was in the late 60s and there was a flood in Florence conservators in Italy had taken the frescoes off the wall and brought them over to the Metropolitan Art Museum in New York and put them back up on the walls in an exhibit called The Great Age of Fresco. They were looking for people to assist. I was, in fact, I was astounded by what they were doing. So I volunteered. And that's my first exposure to conservators who were able to actually transfer works of art in a certain medium that I thought was permanent on a wall and bring it across the ocean. So that's how I got interested in conservation. I then married and went to Yale where my husband was a medical student and I became an apprentice. In those days, you could learn conservation by being an apprentice. I became apprentice to the conservator at the Yale Art Gallery and I did my sciences at Yale as well. I remember the organic chemistry professor was so thrilled to have someone in the class who didn't want to be a doctor, instead wanted to be an art conservator, of all things. Anyway, so that's sort of how I got into conservation. One of the reasons I was so excited to bring you to the Whitney was your work on Mark Rothko's eponymous chapel in Houston. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that was, um, that was a very important project. I would say, for my development and evolution as a conservator? Really good question. I, again, following my medical doctor husband around, I landed in Galveston, Texas, and met Dominique de Menil, who was building a museum in Houston. She had commissioned Mark Rothko to do a non-denominational chapel in Houston in 64, and by 1967, Mark Rothko had finished these 14 panels, which formed the chapel. They were predominantly black with plum purple borders. They were very austere and large murals on canvas. 
the murals were finished in 67 and put in storage until the chapel was built. The chapel was finally opened in February of 1971, but Mark Rothko had died by taking his own life in 1970. So the artist actually never saw the building which he designed or the installation of these works of art. A few years after that, these black paintings began to develop a white efflorescence that was becoming apparent. Dominique de Menil tried to bring, did bring people down, conservators and conservation scientists to address the issue, but no one had seen it before and knew what to do about it. It was at that point that we moved to Galveston and I was contacted and asked if I wanted to go to Houston and meet Dominique de Menil and just sort of treat art in general, her art in general, or she was gonna think about that. Anyway, I went and she took me to the Rothko Chapel after she trusted me, we spent time. She gave me a test, of course, of a work of art to treat before she hmm. had any trust in my ability. And then took me to the chapel and said, look what's happening to these paintings. What do you think? And I said, oh, I don't know. And I don't know anything about Mark Rothko. So she said, well, I'd really like you to find out. Go to New York and see what you can find out. I went to New York. I knew the name of one of the assistants that had helped Rothko paint these paintings. And this is a kind of a, it's almost a, a weird thing because nowadays we don't use phone books. In fact, that, then we did the phone book and I went through the phone book and called every R. Kelly, his name was R. Kelly, Ray Kelly, and finally found him. And he came to Houston and painted simulations. So I knew how the paintings were made. Anyway, to make a long story short, with that information in hand, we were able to devise a treatment for these paintings. What was shocking was that no one had any technical information about Mark Rothko or any other artist for that matter at this point, and this was the mid 80s. So following that experience, I started asking artists about how things were made and how they aged and how they looked and how the artists wanted them to look and so on. And that has become an interview project called the Artist Documentation Program, which is actually online now. Can you share an unexpected anecdote in the course of conducting those artist interviews? Yeah. Fast forward to New York when you hired me to come to the Whitney. I interviewed an artist named Dario Robletto. You probably remember his mm -hmm. installation. He was a very young artist. He'd never met a conservator before. It was an incredible installation. It was called Popular Hymns Will Sustain Us, End It All, 2000-2001. It was about music, but it was an installation with all these different figurines, figures he had made. And one of them was a butterfly. And so he said, well, you know, what do you do? What does a conservator do? And I said, well, for example, if this antenna of this butterfly broke, I would make another one that would look the same and would replace this one. And he said, well, you can't do that. And I go, yes, I can. I can make it look the same. He said, no, it has to be made out of James Brown's sex machine, the record. It has to be that. You can't just go get any material to make it. I was shocked for the second time. It wasn't the first time, but it was the second time I realized that sometimes the nature of a material goes way beyond what we see for the artist. And that has to be respected because it's integral to the nature of the work of art. Mel Chin feels the same way. So you can't just go use any material that looks the same. Even in the case of a conservator, we would look for something most permanent that looks the same. 
but you really do have to use the same material that the artist used for reasons beyond appearance. So that was one of the surprises. I've had several through the years. James Rosenquist was a billboard painter before he was known as the artist that we know today. When I interviewed him, I was stunned about by the amount of information and experience he had in the preservation of paint. He knew which colors would fade, which would not, how you use them, how they lasted. It was extraordinary. And that was based on his experience as a billboard painter. Your account of Dario Robleto and the butterfly antenna, the invisible source of it being a James Brown record, it makes me think of an old master painter of the sort you might have started your career on, for whom the invisible religiosity informed the making of their art. So there's almost a through line for you in pursuing an artist's intention. That's absolutely right, Max. And sometimes when we take works of art out of the place in which they were intended to be viewed, like a predella out of an altarpiece, we divested of a certain amount of presence that we have to think about not only in installation, but also in how we care for these works. You arrived at the Whitney almost 20 years ago, amazingly enough, and I wonder what surprised you most on first encountering the institution? Oh. <laughs> The Whitney had never had a conservator on staff. And so the, the job, the, the responsibilities of the conservator were spread among the different departments. So it was difficult to take a little piece from everybody to establish this department. But I think what was most surprising for me is when I was hired to come to the Whitney, I thought I would find a collection that had been undertreated since they had not had a resident conservator. In fact, the opposite was true. I found a collection that was, in my opinion, overtreated because the Whitney, with its sense of responsibility, would be sure that a work of art was sent to a conservator whenever anything looked slightly awry. And that was the registrars doing their job. But the fact is, therefore, works of art were treated without an umbrella philosophy or an umbrella look over the entire collection and how do we want this collection to be preserved for posterity. It really is. It's really a decision-directed uh, approach. And so when I came and then began to establish the department, and more than that, the philosophy of conservation, yes, what it could do physically, but also what it, what it could do for the collection in terms of how we see it and how we think of it, and then primarily how the artist would want it, to, intended it to be seen. Those factors really shaped my early days at the Whitney and the shaping of the department, I would say. Beyond divining the artist's intention, you have a lot of practical considerations as well. Are works of art generally safer in storage or on display? Mm. Well, we've certainly been thinking about that a lot now because the Whitney's been dark for three months. The technical answer would be that they would be safer over a long time in storage because there would be less light exposure. Light exposure does contribute to the oxidation and the aging of works of art. And so if you said safer in terms of preservation over time, then being in the dark in storage would be safer. However, art is meant to be seen. And so we accept that it is in galleries and it is exposed to light in galleries. 
And so we monitor that very carefully. You can imagine we monitor that particularly carefully at the Whitney where we have a lot of glass. Now for three months, what has been on view has been in the dark. So conservators are happy about that in terms of preservation, but very sad that the public can't see the works that we work hard to preserve for exhibition. How would you summarize the risks of transit, of shipping works of art for exhibitions, for loans, for conservation elsewhere? It's one area of our field, one among others, but it is one area that there's constant research. And I'm so pleased by that because we've learned a lot recently. We understand in a much more sophisticated way the nature of the vibration that occurs during transit and how we can pack these works beyond the obvious things we've been doing over the decades to mitigate that space and that air and what the flow of that air and the way it impacts the work of art. I'm feeling that we look very carefully every time we lend something and every time we borrow something, but we're always looking at how we can mitigate the effects of transit. I think we've done pretty well on that. Works of art are very vulnerable when they're on the road. They have to make the transit from the museum to the truck, to the tarmac, to the plane, and so on. They're vulnerable when they're in transit, aren't they? They are. And in my career, I have seen damage that has occurred with them. I've seen forklift damage, for example. Even with people present, accidents happen. Conservators are like doctors who can tell you horrible stories about things <laughs> that happen, because that's when we get called in. So yes, there are a lot of opportunities along the way for damage, but normally there's a courier with the work whose prime purpose is to think about that work of art and the impact of whatever is happening around it is on that work of art. We're very careful about that. And again, I think that the processes have been improved over time. More, more by awareness than anything else, I would say. But now as we go post-COVID, I'm not sure what the transit requirements or possibilities will be. Do you have a crystal ball about conservation after the pandemic? Will anything be different? We're not back in the museum yet. We're eager to be because, as I said, when we started, we're conservators. We work on objects. That's what we love doing. But we're also focusing our attention on our online presence. People are often interested in what we do. They, they like to have an eye into what we do. And so we are thinking of different kinds of projects that we could put online that could bring you into our world, which is very much in the DNA of the Whitney. We're also always willing and eager to assist artists in any way. So we are developing different ideas of programming that will be directed toward the artists online. For example, in the past, I was so thrilled to move to the new building and get this beautiful conservation studio that we have, which enabled us to invite artists in to talk about issues. We have a program where we're in the studio where we invite artists to come in. They get beer in the, in the office, but I won't let them take it in the studio. And then we go into the studio and they can ask a conservator any question they have. And it's really interesting because they find out the information they're looking for, and then we find out what they're doing. So it's kind of a trade for us to be up on what's going on and for them to get information from us. It's been a very successful program. I love it, but we're limited in what we can do now, so we may move that online. What are some of the special challenges attendant to working on artworks in time-based media, like 16-millimeter film? 
the standard response to something like that is that we are migrating our information from one support to another and keeping this information in a form that can be used in the future in different physical ways. There are interesting questions that come up with that. Well, I have two thoughts in mind. One is we worked with Josh Klein, who we, we purchased sculpture from him. Uh, it's called Cost of Living, Aleda. They're 3D prints, for example. He told us in the future, the printers would be better, would be closer to the accuracy of the code itself. So in the future, he thought we should just reprint the sculptures as opposed to keeping them and restoring them. So it's a very different idea about conservation in the sense that we just remake them in the future. I know that's not what you're talking about from 16 millimeter to other kinds of formats, but it is in the same realm of changing of how a work of art may change physically, but that's very much in keeping with the concept of what the artist intended. In our media preservation initiative, it's really interesting because we are not only dealing with the issues of physical preservation, but we're also dealing very much with the questions of how these were shown at different times in the life of the work of art and while the artist was alive, and whether that smaller format, you know, a small screen, something that was made on the internet, made for the computer screen, can that then be displayed on the wall? And this exhibition that we did, the curator, Christiana Paul and I, we co-curated it. Our thought was what was most important was to preserve the experience that the artist intended. So we worked very closely with artists. So that's kind of a roundabout answer to your question, but I'd say it's more complicated than just migrating, which is the kind of thing that's often the answer to that question. More than any other professional in the art world, you actually have to channel the intentions of an artist, don't you? That's true. We do. And it's, it's tricky business, by the way. It's not easy. I hate to even use the word intention because it's so complicated. But it's really important to get a sense from the artist of what the artistic investment was. And that's part of what these interviews I do are. That's a, oh, everything that these interviews I do are about. Some artists are very particular, as you've shared, about how their work is treated. And others are a bit hands-off. Isn't that true? Correct. And that's why it's important to have a sense of that. Now, I also realize when we're doing these interviews that we're not going to ask the important question for the future. We're just not. I mean, no one asked Michelangelo about color, not Condivi, not Vasari, his contemporaries. And that's the, the one issue that this cleaning controversy hundreds of years later centered on. Color just wasn't important to discuss at his time. It's very clear to me that when we do these interviews, our questions are shaped by our time. But interviews are filmed, and the whole importance of that is so that you get some sense of the way the artist is thinking. There may be something that is said in an open interview format, which is what they are, that might have some relevance in the future. How do you and the curators sort it out when works of art are facing true conservation challenges? I would say we very much take our cue from the artist. When I think about works that have just totally disintegrated, I'm okay, I'm thinking of a work by an artist, Ed Keenholz. Its name is Jane Doe and the date is 1959. And there was a companion piece of John Doe, 1959. And in the drawer, John Doe is this male mannequin on a child stroller. And in the drawer was his male part that he could take out and use whenever he wanted. And it was made out of a rubber mask. 
when the Manil collection, where I was working at the time, acquired this piece, I opened the drawer and there was just powder. That was it. And so I said to the curator, what, what was this? And he said, oh, well, this completely disintegrated. It was a rubber mask. Ed Keenholz was still alive. He was therefore able to make another. To him, it was very important that it be made from a store-bought material, just a cheap rubber mask. He brought two to the Manil. He refashioned one. We tried to preserve the other, and he replaced it. John Chamberlain made sculptures out of foam rubber, didn't he? Yes, he did. I have an interview with him about that. And he also painted. Sometimes he put paint on them. Those foam rubber pieces had so much to do with wear and the roll coming out of the machine. That particular piece that John used came to see how sturdy and thick it was. All materials are decaying. American artists post-war went to the hardware store instead of the art store. So they were using industrial materials and they were never intended to last. They had a very short shelf life. So I would say our challenge for that kind of work is to try to preserve it as best we can, and if not, to have a sense from the artist as to how it should look. Museum collection management policies have clauses dealing with the destruction of artworks that have completely lost the artist's visible intention. Is that something you've confronted? I can't think of an instance offhand that a work has been totally disintegrated, destroyed, in my experience. I know they exist, but not in my experience, so I cannot address that. So what's the advice you give to a young person who's entranced and is interested in pursuing a career in art conservation? I think it'd be really important for them to somehow meet a conservator, get into a private conservator studio in some way, just to be around the work, to have some sense if this appeals to you. It's a very long training process. It's graduate training and it's based on the medical model. So it's graduate training and then it's an internship after that. So it's a very long process. And I've often heard, you know, a very long process and not a huge financial reward. However, the major reward of it is this personal reward that you're saving art for posterity. And I have to say that of the conservators I know, including myself, that is our greatest joy, that we love our work, we're totally committed to it. And so I encourage young people to think about it and to try to get a sense of it by either getting into a conservation studio in an art museum or in a private conservation studio and just try to get a sense of what it takes or what it's like. Joe, thank you so much for making time. Tell us where you would like people to go find some of what you've been up to online. Well, I think that the best thing to do would be to listen to the interviews. It's the Artist Documentation Program. It's adp.manil.org. And you hear artists speak for themselves. I mean, you're going to hear conservators asking questions, but the best thing is to hear what artists have to say themselves about their work. It's illuminating, and more than that, it's helping direct us in ways to preserve their work. That's a great note to close things off today. Thank you so much for making time, Carol. Thank you for inviting me, Max. We've been speaking today with Carol Mancusi-Ungaro, the Melva Buxbaum Associate Director for Conservation and Research at the Whitney Museum of American Art. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow the show at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts if you care to, which helps other listeners find their way to us.